Abolitionist social work requires really that we connect, we understand, we work in solidarity. Social work for, for Palestine, for me, and, and abolition is to speak truth. So it's an international conversation with international global responsibility. It's not our responsibility alone as Palestinians, because as social workers, if we know and we are un not active, we are really contributing to the power of the settler state. Yeah. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. By joining the book club, you get all new Haymarket titles delivered to your door and a 50% discount on the entire Haymarket website. All for one low Hello price. Hello and welcome. Be sure My to subscribe to our podcast Wahab, and the Haymarket YouTube channel to, you to access the land all of our of the upcoming Multnomah, events. The if you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast the on Apple the Chinook, or whatever platform you're listening on. Other indigenous tribes along the Columbia River in Oregon. I'm a first-generation Palestinian French-Canadian with U.S. citizenship. My father and his family were expelled from their village in Palestine during the Nakba of 1948. I am a professor in the School of Social Work at Portland State University, and it's my pleasure to welcome you all to this event focused on Palestine, criminalization, and social work. Uh, I'd like to thank, uh, to begin by thanking the Network to Advance Abolitionist Social Work social workers for Palestine, as well as our comrades in Palestine, South Africa, the UK, Kashmir, and Turtle Island for helping make this event possible. There's so many reasons why this event is timely and necessary. I have to wonder how many people here know that Israeli forces have killed over a thousand Palestinian children since 2005. 61 Palestinian children this year alone. As our presenters today will discuss criminalization and abolition, I invite you to consider the fact that Israel prosecutes between 500 and 700 Palestinian children in military courts every year. Solitary confinement, torture, detentions of children are just some of the issues that our presenters will engage today. And I believe that um, while social work around the world has yet to be activated in any significant fashion around the continued dispossession of Palestinians and the theft of land, the time is now. And this activation is both possible and necessary and is aligned with social work commitments and values. So with that, to help us understand to engage, I have the pleasure of introducing our presenters today, Dr. Nadres Shalhub Kevorkian and Dr. Suhad Tabahe. Dr. Suhad Tabahe is a proud first-generation American. She currently serves as the director and associate professor in the School of Social Work at Dominican University in Illinois. 
She received her master's from the University of Chicago in social service administration and her PhD from the University of Illinois, Chicago. Her research focuses on Islamo-racism, international social work in Palestine, decolonizing social work curriculum, as well as intimate partner violence in the Muslim community. She currently uses photo voice as a method of understanding the lived experiences of the Palestinian, Arab, and Latinx communities navigating a post-Trump US and a pandemic. She has over 15 years of experience working with minoritized populations across the Chicago area. And she teaches across the curriculum in areas of practice, policy, research, and diversity. And then Dr. Nadra Shalhoub Kavorkian, a Palestinian feminist, is the Lawrence D. Beale Chair in Law at the Faculty of Law, Institute of Criminology, and the School of Social Work and Public Welfare at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. She's also the Global Chair in Law at Queen Mary University, London. Her scholarship focuses on knowledge production in relation to accumulative trauma, state criminality, surveillance, gender violence, law, and society. She has authored many books, including Militarization and Violence Against Women in Conflict Zones in the Middle East, The Palestinian Case Study, Incarcerated Childhood and the Politics of Unchilding, uh, as well as uh, a book that she is finishing up now titled The Cunning of Gender Violence. So to give you a sense of um, what will happen next, um, Dr. Tabahe will provide some history and context about Palestine. I think this will be particularly useful for those in the audience who are new uh, to uh, thinking or understanding Palestine and Palestinian resistance. Then Dr. Tabahe will pose some questions to Dr. Nadra who will speak about the violence of settler colonialism with specific attention to the ways uh, criminalization of Palestinians operates as a technology of settler colonialism. We hope to leave some time for question and answers at the end. So, um, Dr. Tabahe, I will uh, pass it over to you. Thank you so much, Dr. Wahab, um, not only for that introduction, but also for bringing us all together um, in this really important space and critical dialogue and for your commitment to Palestinian liberation. Let me start off by saying that Palestine is and always has been a land with people, history, rich customs and traditions, and such incredible resilience in the face of colonization, occupation, ethnic cleansing, and continued injustices against land and people. So if we could put the map up, that would be great. Uh, because a physical map is always a good play, is a, always a good starting point to understand where Palestine is situated geographically. So Palestine, for those unfamiliar with its location, is an occupied country in Western Asia, officially governed by the Palestinian Liberation Organization, PLO. It claims the West Bank, including East Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip as its territory, um, though that entirety of that territory has been occupied by Israel. According to recent world metrics data, the state of Palestine is home to over 5 million people and the Gaza Strip is home to over 2 million people and is one of the most densely populated places in the world and is often referred to as an open air prison. 
due to Israel's tight restrictions over its borders, surveillance, and violence over its inhabitants. The state of Palestine is recognized by more than 135 member states in the United Nations, such as Brazil, China, India, Sweden, Ukraine, Poland, South Africa, and Nigeria, representing about 82% of the world population. However, it is not recognized as an official state by the United States, United Kingdom, Australia, France, Canada, Germany, Italy, Japan, Mexico, and many other countries. So bear with me as I try to, to unpack some decades-long history in about 15 minutes here. So the story of Palestine is rooted in national, political, territorial, cultural, and religious factors, and is not only about land, but the right to self-determination and liberation. The historical roots of the continued Palestinian-Israeli conflict is embedded in political tension and Israeli military presence, and is the byproduct of British colonialism and the rise of the Zionist movement in 1948. Zionism is a movement first established as a political organization in 1897 by, Her by Theodore Herzl, with the goal of returning Jews to Zion, the Jewish synonym for um, Jerusalem. Originally, it was a movement for the establishment and now the reestablishment of a Jewish nation in the occupied Palestinian territories. There are numerous agreements and declarations that occurred between 1915 and 1948, all of which were based on colonial quests for power and land without care or consultation for the people who lived in that land. Through a series of promises which contained extreme contradictions, the Balfour Declaration encouraged European colonial rule at the expense of Arab independence. Balfour believed that by issuing the Balfour Declaration, it would only reclaim a territory promised to the Jews by God. In a memorandum he wrote in August 1919, Balfour made it evident that he was well aware of the multiple contradictory promises made to parties in the Arab world, yet his Zionist agenda was of utmost priority. In issuing the Balfour Declaration, the Arabs correctly claimed that the British were unjustly giving away their lands without having rightful authority over it. These early, earliest Zionist claims were substantiated by the Christian Evangelical Church in the future proclamation of the return of Christ. So we see a theological justification for colonization, which is later perpetuated by secular Western academia, which proposes that Palestine was a land without people, which is a false narrative feeding into the Zionist project. On May 15, 1948, the official day in which the State of Israel was created, more than 500,000 Palestinian Arabs were expelled from their homeland in an event known today as the Nakaba, the catastrophe. So between 1947 and 1949, at least 750,000 Palestinians from a 1.9 million population were made refugees beyond the borders of the state. Zionist forces had taken more than 78% of historic Palestine, ethnically cleansed and destroyed about 530 villages and cities, and killed about 15,000 Palestinians in a series of mass atrocities, including more than 70 massacres. The Palestinian experience of dispossession and loss of homeland is now in its 74th year. After 1948, Israel had worked endlessly to make the best of its exposed strategic position. It also absorbed more than one million immigrants, um, and military service was an important part of making the new arrivals into Israel, Israelis. Israel quickly built a large and deadly military, 
and by 1967, it was close to acquiring its own nuclear weapon. The Six-Day War in 1967 ended with Israel capturing the Sinai Peninsula, the Golan Heights, the Gaza Strip, and the West Bank, including East Jerusalem. What we have today is a result of colonization, false narrative, narrative predicated on myths, supported by the Christian evangelical lobby, and as well as the Israeli lobby, is a case of settler colonialism. Colonization with purpose of territorial occupation and formation of a new community, an intention to de-indigenize the Palestinian people and appropriate the culture, the food, the land, among, among many other things. The largest settler colony, uh, colony in Palestine is my home city, Hebron. Excuse me. The two techniques deployed through settler colonialism is geography, taking away the physical land and the space, and demography, uh, taking control of the people through expulsion or killing of them, which uh, Dr. Nadira will unpack for us later on. Before I turn it over uh, to Dr. Nadira, I would like to underscore the five major violations of international human rights, laws, and humanitarian law, which characterize the occupation according to the Human Rights Watch. So these five are, number one, unlawful killings. Number two, forced displacement. Number three, abusive detention, which uh, Dr. Wahab alluded to. Number four, the closure of Gaza Strip and other unjustified restrictions on movement. And number five, the development of settlements along with the accompanying discriminatory policies that disadvantage Palestinians. So on, on unlawful killings, and we're gonna get a lot more from this uh, from the Torah later on, um, Israeli troops killed well over 2,000 Palestinian civilians in the last three Gaza conflicts in 2008, 2012, and 2014 alone. Many of these attacks amount uh, to violations of international humanitarian law due to the failure um, to take all feasible precautions to, to spare civilian lives. The latest violence in Gaza resulting in an 11-day conflict in May 2011 left more than 200 Palestinians dead and left a devastating effect on Gaza's infrastructure. In the West Bank, Israeli security forces have routinely used excessive forces in policing situations, killings, wounding thousands of demonstrators, children, rock throwers, and other suspected assailants. Number two, forced displacement. Israeli authorities have since 1967 facilitated the transfer of its civilians into the occupied West Bank territories, including East Jerusalem, which is in direct violation of the Fourth Geneva Convention. Israel applies Israeli civil law to settlers, giving them and affording them legal protections, rights and benefits that are not extended to Palestinians living in the same territory who are, uh, who are subjected to Israeli military law. Israel provides settlers with infrastructure, services, and subsidies that it denies to Palestinians, creating a, and sustaining a separate and unequal system of law, rules, and services. Israeli authorities have expropriated thousands of acres of land for settlements and their supporting infrastructure. Israel has arbitrarily excluded hundreds and thousands from its population registry restricting their ability to live and travel from the West Bank and Gaza. The third violation, abusive detention. Israeli authorities have incarcerated hundreds and thousands of Palestinians since 1967, as Dr. Wahab uh, spoke to. The majority uh, of trials are in military courts, in which almost 100% have a conviction rate. 
In addition, on average, hundreds uh, every year have been placed in administrative detention, solitary confinement, based on secret evidence without charge or trial, including children who are detained or imprisoned for engaging in nonviolent uh, activism. Number four, the closure of Gaza Strip um, and unjustified restrictions on movement. It's been 15 years now since 2007 and the closure of Gaza by, is by Israel. The closure has devastated the economy in Gaza, contributed to fragmentation of the Palestinian people and forms part of the Israeli authorities, crimes against humanity, crimes of the apartheid and persecution against millions of Palestinians. If we could show the map of um, the uh, road restrictions, Israel has also imposed restrictions on freedom of movement in the, in the West Bank, enforced uh, through checkpoints within the West Bank and its borders with, is with Israel. Israel's apartheid wall, supposedly built for security, in fact cuts through the West Bank significantly, significantly more than it runs along the green line separating the West Bank from Israel, contrary to international humanitarian law, as confirmed by the International Court of Justice in July 2004. And lastly, the development of illegal settlements. If we could show the map here, please. So does this map accurately show the loss of Palestinian land since 1947? It does indeed. The map accurately depicts the land that has been forcibly taken from Palestinians since 1947, one year before Israel was established and the accompanying expulsion of, a, of um, and between 750,000 and a million Palestinians to make way for a Jewish state. Israel's systemic disposition of Palestinians is ongoing today, both in the occupied territory and inside Israel's internationally recognized pre-1967 borders, where Palestinian citizens of the state and those living under occupation continue to be pushed out of their homes and off their land, including entire towns to make way for Jewish citizens and settlers. Today, there are approximately 650,000 Jewish settlers living illegally on occupied Palestinian land in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. And Israel's settlement enterprise covers approximately 42% of the West Bank. The massive campaign of 1948 and thereafter to demolish the homes and take the lands of Palestinians who have been forced from their communities in the Nakba was patent, patently illegal going against international law, as well as UN resolution that requires that refugees have their properties restored to them. Among the most urgent flashpoints are in Sheikh Jarrah, Silwan, Sheikh Al Ahmar, the Jordan Valley, and South Hebron Hills, which uh, Dr. Dr. will speak to. I will conclude my portion by saying that, despite the existence of Israel in the region for over seven decades, Palestine and Palestine and its supporters have not forgotten the exile of hundreds and thousands of Palestinians and the need to resist violence and settler colonialism. On the existence of Israel, Israel's first prime minister, Ben Gurion, had stated, the old generation of refugees will die and the young will forget. <clears throat> but, but almost 75 years into the occupation, that statement is far from true. We need to study the story of Palestine as one rooted in human rights and conceptualized through a decolonial liberatory framework. And let us remember, as Nelson Mandela stated, we know too well that our freedom is incomplete without the freedom of Palestinians. 
And with that, I welcome again uh, Dr. Nadira to help us further contextualize the criminalizations of Palestinians, unpack settler colonialism and the work of abolition, and what we could do as abolitionists and, so and as social workers to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian struggle characterized by the criminalization of resistance and Palestinian resilience. Uh, so welcome again, uh, Doctora. Um, uh, my first question to you that I would like to pose um, is if you could speak um, to your work on the criminalization of Palestinians, children, and dead bodies. Okay. Uh, thank you, Dr. Tabahi. Thank you, uh, Professor Wahab, for um, for organizing this event. And uh, let me start, maybe, uh, Dr. Tabahi, by explaining what is settler colonialism to our audience in order to be able to talk about what goes on with children. Because when we're talking about settler colonialism, as many scholars have explained, settler colonialism is a structure. And what you were explaining, what you were showing, the geopolitics, the biopolitics, and so on, it's a structure. It's not an event, and it's about the indigenization of the settlers and the eviction of the native. And as as we say, it's also embedded in a logic of elimination. Yeah. So when we look at Zionism, Zionism is an ideology and a political movement that is subjecting Palestinians and Palestine to structural and violent forms of dispossession, as you have were showing, land appropriation, eraser, in the pursuit of a new Jewish state and society. So for settlers, colonial movement for Zionism, the control of land is a zero-sum uh, contest, fought against the indigenous population. The drive to control the maximum amount of land is at the center. So the continued existence of Palestinians poses severe problems for uh, the completion of the Zionist project. And consequently, it informs Israeli state policy against Palestinians inside Israel, in the occupied territories, and, and uh, in exile, yes. So transfer has been part of the Israeli policy and part of the public discourse since the creation of that state. The Palestinian nation is really pushed from one catastrophe to another as the Zionist project accelerates. However, viewed through the lens of settler colonialism, the Nakba of 1948 is not simply a precondition for the creation of Israel or the outcome of early Zionist ambition. The Nakba is not a singular event, but is manifested today in the continued subjection of Palestinians by the Israelis. Therefore, settler colonial state violence, as, as I see it, governs Palestinians really biopolitically, geopolitically, transforming life and land into monitored zones and borderlands of unliving, yeah, packed with checkpoints, packed, packed with, with the system of, of a constant uh, killing and so on. So settler colonialism governed also via state legalities, yes, yeah, such uh, political legal maneuvering governs reproductive politics, govern population control, deny them the inter, um, internationally recognized right of return, the right to reunite as families, revoke residency, and so on. The Israeli settler state's preoccupation 
with demography and the Jewishness of the state. Evidence, for example, if you look at its laws, mainly the nationality and entry law, uh, has created major fractures among Palestinian families. Uh, such laws denied the right to passage to birthing mothers. And I was thinking, like, just thinking about a birthing mother, knowing that you are a pregnant professor, Tabahi, transplant, uh, it's, it's a major issue. Or, for example, transportation of the dead bodies through checkpoints, yeah, or prohibiting Palestinians from reaching necessary services, including hospitals, educational institutions, and, and so on. So it's beyond the imposition of discriminatory laws. Colonial politics hold emotions, as we are talking about us as social workers and mental health workers. They hold emotions and affects as major capital in the hands of the state. It's also a machinery of psychic oppression. Such psychological warfare induces political precarity, where life and death, under a constant machinery of elimination, becomes filled with fears about unsettling future, unending violence. And as mental health workers, we must attend to affects and how coloniality shapes the psychic life of colonized people in Palestine. So let me share uh, with you my study on the ordeals of, of a mother, which is Aida. And Aida was, uh, you know, is 26 years old. And she explains, I took the bus. I took the bus alone because my husband was stopped on our way. The Israeli soldiers were checking the area and he was stopped and delayed. So I went on. I was in pain, took the bus and came to the hospital alone. I did not think, just took the bus passed the checkpoint, showed them my ID, waited in pain until they allowed the bus to go through, took a taxi to the hospital, and I had her. Now, Aida's words exemplify her feelings of living in fear and terror. Aida's fear and anxiety, both as a woman on the verge of giving birth and also after giving birth, is a physical and psychological manifestation of the treatment of Palestinian women bound by the politics, geopolitics, biopolitics, and sociocide of military occupation and, 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 the, and its settler colonial regime. That invasion of the occupied body has inherited suffering due to the historical injustice in an occupied time, occupied space in a state of mundane terror in which hegemonic knowledge production has situated Aida and her, her newborn in a geography of fear and with an archaeology of constant uncertainty as a born terrorist. So Aida's words do not solely reflect her own intimate and individual fears and worries, like feeling terrorized at a critical moment in her life as she is about to bring another life into her world. Her testimonial addresses larger issues that surround the inscription of power onto Palestinian women's birthing body during contractions and in moments of birth in the occupied Palestinian territory. So if you only think about birth in Palestine, Think about the military occupation's insolence, insolence with which a dominant Israeli narrative about Palestinian uh, terrorism is crafted, insolence towards Palestinians' everydayness. In its minute details, 
finds itself carved on women's pregnant bodies. What I want to claim is that the production of knowledge involving the narration of Palestinian otherness as terrorist is embedded not only in what goes on inside Palestine, but in a global politics of denial, one that denies Palestinian women the right to safe birth and in a large sense to full citizenship. What I'm arguing is that the unseen, the unacknowledged Israeli practices, the laws, the modes of dominations, as demonstrated in Aida's narrations and in others, in her act of riding a bus while having contractions, in her willingness to face a military checkpoint when in labor, in her ability to carry her birthing body with a psychological determination that refuses to normalize suffering are not solely made up of fixed sets of regulations. They are interchanging and malleable conditions of racist settler coloniality. And I argue that such state terrorism is infused into familiar everyday practices. So when we listen to women like Aida's ordeals and in my research on birth in, in Jerusalem and the voices uh, to her discussion of birth, both as material reality for a given woman yeah, at a specific time and also as a conceptual event, not just for Palestinian women in the region, but within the power nexus that surrounds them. We have to take into account the various economies of birth that are prevalent in the occupied territories. What complicates such a discussion is that the physical and conceptual aspects within it meet at a middle ground where the psychic and the body must inevitably be discussed in tandem, as again, as mental health workers. So in the testimonies of various Palestinian women gathered for my study, the body space, the physical space, time becomes all implicated in their experiences. And ironically, time comes to be conceptualized in their world as a place, as space of timelessness, an eternity of waiting and wishing for the multiple assaults on their daily lives to be over. Days, months, and moments merge together in a confluence of suffering that is so continuous that the measuring of time passing becomes meaningless, nothing short of impossible. So here, understanding settler colonialism, we need really to remember that it is in, the, in that space of the tender space, it's intimately scaled, it's lived violence that is constantly being reproduced and reborn through individuals, bodies, and relationship. And settler colonialism requires us as, as mental health workers, as social workers, that we examine the incarceration of children like Ahmed Manasra or the killing yesterday of Jana Zakarni. Jana Zakarni, 16 year old from Janine, was, was on, on the roof of her house checking where is her little kitten, Lulu, and she was shot by the Israelis. And we need to look at those spaces, at Aida's womb, at, at Jannah, at Ahmed, as part of a regime, as part of a structure, not an event, as part of a machinery of dispossession. Hence the need not only to abolish incarceration, and to talk about abolition of incarceration or to defund the police or to defund the prison 
or to talk about the criminalization, we need really uh, to act against military occupation. We need to act about the militarization of the police. We need to call for the abolition of Zionism because settler colonialism here uh, in, in Palestine is producing and reproducing racism and racialization. And we focus on addressing specific cases when we look at, at Ahmed here or the cases of children that are shot in their knees in, in Gaza or the amount of incarceration in military uh, uh, courts. But it is the not going to solve the problem. We need really to look at, understand how states withholding of Palestinian dead bodies, refraining from allowing them to have a, a dignified barrier or allow their families to grieve as part of the structure. So as an abolitionist social worker, and in order for us to move forward, create transformative liberatory thinking and interventions, it is necessary that we analyze Zionism's structural continuous dispossession. We analyze its violence. We, analyze, we look at its ideology that is informing its policies and practices towards Palestinians everywhere. What I'm saying, uh, uh, Dr. Tabahe, is that the structural underpinning must really be staged as central objects to analyze, uh, um, to analysis and to our activism. So the analysis is not a post-colonial analysis, as some would say, or post-conflict, no. And we Palestinians are not an ethnic minority, but rather indigenous community, a native community facing the settler colonial eliminatory uh, violence, whether the physical, whether the symbolic, and and so on. And um, yeah. Dora, Dora, if I may, uh, you know, some of our audience may not be familiar with Ahmed Manasha's case. Uh, would you be able to just to speak to um, uh, speak to 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 what happened and, and, and what that looks like? Yes, um, yes. Ahmed Manasra was arrested at the age of 13, and he was in, and he is still in uh, in jail. He was sentenced for nine and a half years. He is still in solitary confinement at this point. And we, as the Palestinian Global Mental Health Network, started a campaign last year in on the 12th of March. Uh, trying and asking to abolish his his uh, sentence and to release him, but nobody have listened to our voice. Nobody have attended to our requ request. Although Ahmed at this point is uh, have have served more than two thirds of his sentence, and but and he is suffering from severe mental issues due to his uh, solitary confinement. So as you can see, you know, in in the case of Ahmed. Um, and maybe I will talk later about the concept of unchilding, but it is really, he is perceived as an unchilded other that is not, and nobody is looking at his, um, um, at his condition, his mental condition, and, it, and his right as a child, let alone that solitary confinement, according to international law, you cannot keep a child in solitary confinement for after 14 days of, of um, of um, solitary confinement, it's considered torture according to the international law, but yet Israel did not respond. The Israeli criminal justice system refused our various uh, requests and the family is still awaiting uh, his release.
If you are enjoying the Haymarket Live series, you'll also be interested in a new book from Haymarket, Palestine, A Socialist Introduction, edited by Samaya Awad and Brian Bean. Palestine, A Socialist Introduction, systematically tackles a number of important aspects of the Palestinian struggle for liberation, examining both the historical and contemporary trajectory of the Palestine Solidarity Movement in order to glean lessons for today's organizers and compellingly lays out the argument that, in order to achieve justice in Palestine, the movement has to take up the question of socialism regionally and internationally. As Nora Erekat puts it, the book connects the past to our present, and, despite the daunting odds before us, sustains a commitment to a socialist future where all of us are free. Find Palestine a Socialist Introduction at haymarketbooks.org. Thank you for providing that that context. Um, you know, and, and as you brought up the issue of Jenna and Ahmed, um, again, this 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 notion and, and, and concept of unchilding, I think um, it would be great for maybe you to unpack that a little bit more. What what does that mean? What does that look like? Um, and in the context of settler colonialism and in the occupied territory, just just kind of breaking down those layers of unchilding in that context, I think would be. Um, and uh, enriching for, for, for all of us to hear. Yeah, thank you. Well, yes, well, let, so let's, let's again try to understand. So if we're talking about Zionism, Zionist uh, domination over Palestinian bodies, as we've seen in Aida's case, over their lives, as we've seen in Ahmed Manasra's case, over land, as we are seeing today in the demolition of homes, in the confiscation of land, in the attacks of settlers. It is on, it's, a, it's an attack over life, over the psychic. It exists to nurture a binary, what we say, necropolitics, as Mbembe would say, which is the economy of life and death. This binary naturalizes that there are those who should be killed, who should be incarcerated, who should be uh, uh, evicted, yeah? And those who are always and forever possess the right to maim, to kill, to eliminate. You were talking about Christian Zionism and the way Christian Zionism is supporting the sacralization of, of, of politics in Palestine. And this is a topic that is worth looking into because it's causing so much suffering to, to communities and to societies. Such logic, the logic, this Zionist logic that is supported by global politics, of course, the global denial of right, that is turning a, a, a blind eye to what goes on with Palestinian children in detentions, what people are suffering, families, and so on. This logic is apparent in the way Israel relates and frames Palestinian children as unchilded others. So if yesterday Jenna Zakarni was shot and killed while standing on the roof of her house where she was looking for Lulu, her white cat, Rayan Sliman, the seven-year-old boy, was walking home from back from school when he and his brothers were chased by the Israeli soldiers. When the brothers arrived to the house and the Israeli army started banging on the door of their house, threatening them, shouted at, at him, shouted at Rayan, at, as uh, calling him a stone thrower, Rayan ran away from one side. The soldiers chased him from the other side. As his cousin explained, Rayan saw the soldier and uh, all of a sudden in front of him, he was shocked and he dropped dead. A seven-year-old Rayan yeah, died of fear 
or as his neighbor Hadil explained, the soldiers were going after all the children in all directions. Yeah, they were swarming them from all directions, looking for any child they could find. Rayan developed a cardiac arrest and he died of fear. Now, same with Ahmed Manasra, yeah, that was that is still in solitary confinement uh, while facing mental illness. So Jana, Rayan, and Ahmed are all Palestinian children that are trying to live their daily life, reach school, search for a lost pet, resist the daily killing and loss, when and while they are used by the state to further its settler colonial project. So unchilding, and this is where I propose unchilding, unchilding exposes the racialized political work of violence that constructs, that directs, that governs, that transforms colonized children and building them, constructing them as terrorist others, as born terrorists, as dangerous others, or as Fanon tells us, they look at they look at the colonized in zoological terms, like animals, yeah? So they look at them as racialized others, thereby enabling their eviction from the realm of childhood itself. And childing aligns and operates within a twisted logic of necropolitics, whereby present and historical realities of who has died in the past, who gets to be born and live and who is left to die now, are inscribed on children's living, maimed and dead bodies. Children who are always already illegitimate non-subjects. So the baby of Aida, that was an unborn child, was illegitimate before even coming to the world, just because her mom is Palestinian. And, and Jenna and Rayan and Ahmed are unchilded. So unchilding emphasizes the effect of racial violence and colonialism on the intimate lives of children. So it moves between the various contexts. It moves between the local that happens in, in Hebron or Bilots and and or and global because Trump and his and and the state and the U.S. is supporting Israel is sending and is training the police in the U.S. is trained by the Israeli police. So not only that there, so and there are different spaces that are being um, uh, affected by this unchilding the educational space, the welfare space, <clears throat> the economic space. It invades the wombs. It invades families. It invades friendships, it invades homes, it invades schools, it invades hospitals. And this unchilding is flexible, it's adaptable, it's predictable sometimes, it's unpredictable sometimes. It enables a complex machinery of, of violence against children, including the imprisonment, including the injury. You know, kids in, in Jerusalem and, and elsewhere are shot in their eyes. So maiming is part of it, yeah? Loss, trauma, militarized uh, political occupation, yeah? Charting children's resistance, like Rayan's resistance, because Rayan's maybe throwing a stone uh, is about telling them, I refuse to accept humiliation as part of my daily life. But the fact that the state is charting children's resistance against and power to interrupt colonial violence, reclaiming them as unchildren. So it is in the voices and witnessing of children like Ahmad, who is still in solitary confinement, calling for our help. 
that I ground the analysis offered in, in my in my book on, on childing. And in the book Incarcerated Childhood and the Politics of Unchilding brings those voices that to show how Palestinian kids are always and forever um, constructed as racialized other. Uh, and this is where you know, I came up with the concept of unchilding, and the concept tries to reveal the multiple layers of state violence, yeah, including the founding violence of, and the ongoing disciplinary, the ongoing biopolitical, the ongoing necropolitical powers that are being inscribed. So analyzing children's lives, analyzing children's ordeals, and looking at what happened when children are incarcerated, invites us to examine the political, but also, as social worker, the ethical questions of children that count and of the unending mundane moments of, of uh, dispossession, yeah? Such as Ryan's encounter with the killing machine on his way back from school. So growing up between the settler state terror, the technologies of violence, the killing boxes where, you know, uh, Israelis have their um, uh, what they call the security towers. Yeah. Uh, while the Palestinian kids call them the killing boxes, the counted and the uncounted violence of unchilding, it exposes the implication of structural, institutional and everyday uh, violence. Thank you so much um, for unpacking that all for us. I think for, for many um, new listeners to, to, to this issue, this, this concept is, is certainly one that resonates in thinking about um, the impact of, of violence and settler colonialism on, on children, unborn children, um, and the body. Uh, if I may, uh, Dr. Um, you know, ask you about your, your continued work around um, dead bodies and, and the criminalization of, of Palestinians and dead bodies. Um, could you explore and explain a little bit more about that? Because I think when folks hear, you know, that somebody's research is around that area, it's like, what are you, what are you doing? How are you, how are you going about that? Um, and what does that look like from, from a social work perspective um, and understanding um, what it means to see the criminalization and, 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 and looking at, um, uh, your research through dead bodies. Yeah, well, I I have looked. I have, as I say, I interviewed dead bodies from the moment they died to the moment they were buried. As you have said, you know, the fact that Israel controls us geopolitically, geographically, burying a loved ones requires their approvals. So what I did is I looked at what happened to Palestinian dead bodies from the moment they are killed to the moment they are buried. And what we have, what I have noticed that there were, for example, in one of the cases where a Palestinian who's, who was born in Jerusalem, who came to the U.S. to study as an engineer, came back to find his, his citizenship revoked. At that point, he required a permit to stay in Jerusalem, although his wife and his kids were in Jerusalem. When he came back, every time he crossed a checkpoint, he needed a permit to be able to cross that checkpoint inside Jerusalem, yes, uh, the Kalandia checkpoint. At one point, he died in his house, and they tried to bring his body back to be buried in, in inside Jerusalem. 
and um, and the Israelis said that he had a permit to cross as a living body, but not as a dead body. So I tried to locate and to look what happened to Palestinian dead bodies. When can we bury our loved ones? How can we bury them? What are the restrictions? What are the regulations? What are the orders? How Israel is manipulating dead bodies? But I also looked in my study at different graveyards. As you know, the study by Sadi Maqdisi that looked at Manila and the way Israel have controlled a Mamilla graveyard or um, Bab al-Rahmi, where it's close to my house in the old city of Jerusalem. So the issue of what do you do, what do we do at the moment of death when you're graving a dead body and you want to bury them? And what happened to the dead body? What is the inscription of power written over dead bodies? So when you look at the structural oppression, this structural oppression is not only on the living, but rather on the dead body. Later on, at a later stage, I worked with families that their, the bodies of their beloved ones were, were withheld in Israeli refrigerators. So one of the cases is Hassan Manasra, who is the cousin of Ahmad Manasra. And Hassan's body was held in the Israeli refrigerators. And I was trying to understand what is the logic behind having putting a child, 15-year-old, who was killed by the Israelis, yeah, uh, uh, shot and killed uh, by his house uh, in um, in the freezer, and this specific case was very very important because not only they kept him in the freezers, we needed to go into different court decisions in order to you know in order to find a way to uh, free his dead body and give his dead body to the, to the family. So there was what I call in my writing a necropenological mode, which is disciplining the family, keeping him in the freezers and keeping a child in the freezers. Just think about his classmate, just think about his family, just think about his mother, whom every time told me that she feels fingers frozen. And even after seven months of um, <clears throat> of uh, you know negotiations with the Israelis, when Hassan was returned to his family on that night, it was midnight when the father was asked to identify his son. His face was totally frozen, and his father kept on telling me that he saw his mouth open and his eyes tearing. And the fact that even he kept on talking about Wishu, his face, his face, his face was telling a different story, his face. And he kept on asking me, do you think that he was calling for my health? Do you think that he was still alive when they put him in the black bag? So looking at um, the violence and the cruelty of keeping a child in the freezer keeping Palestinian dead bodies, analyzing what is the state doing. So it's not only talking about how the burning body, the living body, but, but the dead bodies, trying to grieve, trying to mourn those that we love them. And Israel has, of course, something called the cemetery of numbers, whereby uh, Palestinians are buried without even their family knowing where they are, and they're calling it the cemetery of numbers. So the issue of death is a major issue to me, because if you read 
the birthing bodies, like Aida's birthing body. If you read the dead bodies, like Hassan's wuji, the face of Hassan, what he is telling us, or what he was trying to tell us, what, what, what his father tried to tell us when opening the black bag, it exposes the Israeli settler colonial machinery. It tells you that it is a structure, not an event. It tells you that it's about the eviction of the native, even the eviction of the dead body. And it tells you that is embedded in the logic of elimination. Thank you, Dasora. You know, as I'm sitting here, I'm getting goosebumps and, you know, for as a Palestinian, knowing that this happens, um, seeing dead bodies myself and, and experiencing a lot of, you know, what you're saying um, through my visits over there, it's still, it always hits differently, right? And, and, and you doing this work as a mother and, and just trying to put my myself in the place of Aida and, and for all those parents that have to bury their children and then or not bury their children, have them sit in, in these in these fridges and, and just going through that psychological trauma over and over again um, is unimaginable, right? As a mom, as a person, as a human being and what that looks like. So thank you for, for doing this work. Thank you for sharing this work because it's certainly, um, I know, not, not easy to, to digest, um, to, to, to digest and, and really um, continue to work through. Um, I know I have a few more questions, but I don't know, Stephanie, if you wanted to uh, take some questions or can we ask uh, Dr. Uh, uh, one more question here? Go ahead. Yeah, let's uh, ask her one more question. And then I think there's some questions that are beginning to come from the audience that I can offer afterwards. So one of the things, you know, we spoke yesterday and one of the things that resonated with me, Dr. and I don't mean to pivot, but it all goes to this, 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 um, right, this process and the structure of, of settler colonialism is when you spoke to, you know, um, housing, dem the demolition of houses and spaces and, and, and it happening right there in front of people, yet people not seeing it, not recognizing it byproduct of the structure of racism and colonialism if you could just speak to that like you know we talk about a colorblind approach but this is color settler approach i mean complete blindness um or is it com people just being complicit and in, in this being just a normal structure at this point where we don't see it as harmful um or this product of colonialism if you could just speak to that yeah, well, I, I guess that the issue of how the uh, demolition is part of the of, of peeling the land, of Judaizing the land, of claiming the land as uh, claiming us out of the land. And I guess that if if as social workers, what we need to look at, for example, in my study on housing demolition, I remember getting into a house whereby a child four years old, Raf, her name was. And we used to go with asking them to draw their house, to draw who was there. And she was explaining how bad was it to see the house demolished. So she kept on uh, stressing how her grandpa was screaming and grandma had blood on her face. And she drew the family without her father. So I asked her, Raf, is this the family? She said, yes, I, uh, that's my brother, that's my mom, that's my grandpa, my grandfather. And I said, so this is the family. She looked at me and she said, you mean my father, Abuy? I did not ask him to be my father. The father was at this point in a state of freeze. 
smoking. And Raf got extremely upset. So she decided to take back his license as a father because she did not see him protecting her in that condition. Now, when we're thinking about housing demolitions, we really need to think about the affective element. How is it affecting the, the children? How is it affecting relationship dynamics inside? And that demolition is really beyond only looking at it from um, from <clears throat> like um, as as um, as people that are looking only at the loss of the structure. It's not of the structure. It's part of the uprooting. It's part of the dismemberment. And when I think about it, I think about the, the demolition of of Raf's house. I think about Jaber, and Jaber was in 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 another person that I'm working with now and, and trying to put my book together on swarming. And Jabber was saw the demolition of his house in Deir Yassin in a different form. He saw his father being slaughtered in his uh, in front of his eyes when he, in, he was born in 1945. And, and he came to the old city of Jerusalem after what happened in Deir Yassin, the massacre in Deir Yassin. And he came to the old city to live in an area. And in 1967, during the occupation of, of, of East Jerusalem, his area was demolished again. So he witnessed the demolition of Deir Yassin in April 1948. He came to, to live in the old city to find a place to, to breathe. But he felt entrapped by the colonizer because the settler state was was really after him in different ways yeah and he kept he keeps on talking about how his his life economically health wise legally everything and his the mere house is always under the threat of demolition so that demolition is not only the physical demolition in Rahaf's case it's the demolition of her relationship with her dad in Jabir's case his life was attacked and there is what I call swarming where I feel that there is uh, they're swarming Jabber's life, they're swarming Raf's life in um, from um, different places, yeah. And this accumulative power, the ongoing nature of this debilitation along the settler colonial machinery of violence and its structural dispossession is what we need to stage. Because what I see in swarming, I see in the swarming of, of, of his living uh, the past 80 years, Jabber's living the past eight years, it refers to the different assemblages yeah, of him being a Palestinian, him being attacked, seeing his own father being slaughtered, you know, the way he talks, you see him all the time doing like this because some of the blood of his father came on his face and you see it till today, an eight-year-old man where he is looking, when he talks, you see those different assemblages that are disrupting his life. So that swarming of his life, yeah, this racialized swarming is an active, is an, a violent apparatus that upper operates in in multitude of forms. It some of it is calculated, some of it is not, some of it is organized, some of it is random, is chaotic, is unruly, maneuvering through affects, yeah, maneuvering through social life, causing dismemberment and uprooting. And it's also sensational, yeah. It's bodily, it's spatial, it's social, it's economic. And, and and those intersecting layers that may result in disorienting 
uh, as in Hassan Manar and as in Ahmed Manasra, it it overloads uh, people socioeconomically, as in Jabber's case, and effectively, as in Aida's case. So it uses a network of interlocking racialized violence collusions against the colonized. And it's all embedded in the logic, in genocidal logic, yeah? So you see that swarming structures that is maneuvering in multi multitude of modes, multitude of sites, multitude of times, along with people. You see settlers attacking, military attacking, the police attacking. You see creating new assemblages. You see it on checkpoints, the building of walls, permit regimes, arrest, imprisonment, incarceration. You see it in new forms of social and political relations. It's all new racialized technologies of state terror that should be really called off. And this is where we need to shout out and say, you know, enough, enough with the swarming, enough with the Zionist machinery that is constantly uprooting, dismembering and causing much pain to people. And therefore, the role of social workers is really to say enough, we need to abolish such regime. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I think that was a perfect segue into, um, you know, our, our last question before we, we throw it off to um, uh, the audience question. Um, and you alluded to this, but what should we do? What is, as social workers, as allies, as abolitionists, what is our call to action here? Well, I guess that this is this is number one, really. You know, we need to to know what goes on. Knowing what's going on is very, very important. So joining Free Palestine Movement as social workers, joining social workers for Palestine, build new resistance initiatives while keeping in mind, as Fanon have explained, that for the Negro who works on the sugar plantation, yeah, there is uh, not on, only one solution. And the one solution is to keep on resisting, is to keep on fighting. Yeah. So this is the, to continue the struggle. So really what I think is that working together, maintaining the dignity and the morality of those that are like Rayan. Rayan is, is, was trying to, to say enough to this game. So working on decolonization, which is an urgent need to challenge the colonial state, really, yeah? And 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 uh, and knowledge here is critical to decolonization. So to know what goes on, knowledge through you know ways of knowledge, knowing, knowing, and the validation of knowledge. Because basically, most of the information is affected by white supremacist uh, um, uh, Zionist entities. They're controlling everything. They're controlling academic journals and books and the media and so on. Just think about yesterday in Jerusalem, a 12-year-old young woman was arrested because she posted on TikTok something. So they're, they're controlling everything. So the idea of decolonization or modes of, of being, of knowing, of analyzing and of acting and later on writing yeah, and, and working in solidarity, mainly since most of it has to be born through, through our work together against white supremacy, against patriarchy, against capitalism. Abolitionist 
for me and abolitionist social work is moving beyond the sacralization of some and the profanity of others yeah you know so 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 i want to to give a shout out to one of my favorite community organizations in silwan that were closed in in um, only a couple of days ago and this is a community organization community center you know think about community centers that are gathering kids that are uh, trying to create a protective cocoon uh, under a condition of constant swarming and attack and all of a sudden you know here they get a, a letter closing the community center a center that has scout and dancing and playing and you know it's just this and it's albustan a community center and and all of a sudden the israelis are closing it so abolitionist social work requires really that we connect we understand we work in solidarity yeah and and try to move uh, beyond uh, uh, challenge the police challenge the military challenge the court the carceral state yeah and and look at it from a systematic perspective so social work for for palestine for me and and abolition is to speak truth so it's an international conversation with international global responsibility. It's not our responsibility alone as Palestinian, because as social workers, if we know and we are un not active, we are really contributing to yeah. the power of the settler state. Yeah. So radical, a a radical act means we go to the roots. We look at what happened in 94 and 48 to Jaber. And, and to Palestinians and speak against the unending accumulation by dispossession. And we all should keep in mind that social work make their livelihood of systematic oppression and injustice. So where are they when we talk about Palestine? And it's important to put that. So social work for Palestine is working against the state. Social work for Palestine and abolition is looking at Zionism yeah, as a settler colonial regime and, and, and as racism, acknowledging the brutality of the state. So the extent in which any social worker is complicit, the reality of the brutality, social workers have so much of undoing, otherwise they are actually complicit with what goes on. So social work is about the support for self-determination, for the right to return, and not using as some are doing, you know, concept out of context and saying oh it's the best interest of the child and we need to to support a child and put him in home arrest in east jerusalem no you need to call for to stop the occupation and do not run and play with those general concepts oh i'm caring for the child i'm saving the child i think that we can learn a lot from other settler colonial contexts you know if you look at canada the welfare system assisted and helped the settler state in, in, in Australia, the stolen generation were supported by the church, by the welfare, and by the politics and, and legality. So we need to learn from other places. But as social workers, we really need to look at the ideologies of dispossession that are, are really oiling the machinery. And 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 it's it's really, you know looking at giving voice for Palestinians, decolonize social work, exchange knowledge educate and learn, write and, and write in social work, build connections, having Palestine on the map, yeah? And remember that in Aida's birthing body and in Rayan's childhood and in Ahmed Manasra's 
call in the solitary confinement, yeah, uh, there is a biopolitics, there is a necropolitics. It is an economy of, of life and death, and there is a geopolitics of dispossession of land, and we need to keep that in our mind as social workers in order, at, when we are at the universities, you know, when we're teaching, when we're looking, because otherwise we are really uh, complicit. But, and, you know, I, I believe that part of our role is to carve possibilities, yeah? And have the responsibility to tell our students uh, to be curious, to become autonomous, to learn to ask ourselves questions, make students sure of themselves and have the right to search, to look for, yeah? Uh, and, 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 and not... Uh, being affected by systems, by 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 machineries, by the whitewashing, and and this is really part of of our work, you know, is trying to 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 negotiate and look and understand and look at how we can come together to challenge power that is really being inscribed over the dead bodies, over the living bodies, and 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 it continues to even withhold. Palestinian uh, uh, bodies in the freezer. You know, if you look at the campaign to free uh, Palestinians from the Israeli freezer, it's called Bidna Uladna. We want our kids back. So it's also challenging, interrupting the system of unchilding, yeah? And, and challenging it by, by knowing that number one, as Palestinians, we are not alone, and there are social workers all over the world that are joining our efforts, that there have been people uh, in history that were affected and we need to learn comparatively, yeah? And uh, that there is, uh, and we need really continue creating spaces of hope. And just being here and discussing it with you is, um, is the first step to create as other initiatives of hope uh, in order to, fi to find a way for futurity and life for our kids. Shukran, Doctor. I think you certainly gave us a lot to work with um, and a call for action um, for us to move forward in this. Um, and there's a lot more that I want to ask, but I want to um, pass it over to uh, my colleague, uh, Dr. Wahab, um, from questions, with, uh, questions from the audience. Um, well, shukran. And uh, there's one question, and I believe it's an extension um, of these last comments. Um, and I'll ask it anyways, because it gives us a chance to uh, to build, build this response a little bit more. But the question is, um, how can those of us in countries abroad stand in solidarity with our Palestinian siblings? It warms my heart to hear that framing, particularly those of us um, in countries with governments that play roles in Palestinian occupation. And I know, uh, Dr. Nadra, that you um, started giving us some um, responses. I'm wondering, Dr. Dabahe, if you'd like to add to that in any way. Certainly, and, and thank you for that question. And I think um, 
living and, and um, being here in the United States, our country is, is, is the largest uh, the largest recipient of, of foreign aid goes to Israel, right? And so we certainly know that our tax dollars and, and what we do here um, is contributing to the violence and the settler colonialism and the structure and this logic of elimination that's happening overseas. And, and a part of that is being involved in the political system and structure, right? Um, that's, that's lobbying, that's advocacy, that's writing to your local representatives, um, that's being in their face, right? Um, and, and addressing these issues in, in various levels and capacities. And oftentimes, you know, as social workers, um, social work is political. And so it's incumbent on us to be involved in these political processes as global citizens, as human rights advocates, to really um, go after, challenge, and critically um, think about these issues and critique the, the folks that we put in power. And oftentimes what I get my students is, you know, they, they you know, they, they vote in, in national um, elections, right, for the president, vice president, but for those local ones, students often, you know, tell me, well, is it going to make a difference? What does that look like? Um, that is important. Those make up the members of our Congress who continue to advocate or support um, bills or allocation of funds that go and support the state of Israel, the dome that was created um, as, as a security dome for, for the state of Israel, the weapons that are used to kill our families and our children are being funded by our tax dollars. And so we have a right um, to advocate. We have a right um, to ask questions and, and find those answers of where that money is coming from. And so certainly, you know, again, we're, I'm coming from a country that supports um, su supports Israel 100% and doesn't acknowledge the statehood of Palestine. Um, so it's incumbent on me and incumbent on the rest of us to continue to, to go after our politicians and ask those difficult questions, um, go to City Hall, go to those, the, the, those discussions and bring it up. Oftentimes, it's, if there isn't a Palestinian in the room, there isn't an Arab in the room, those questions don't get asked. Right. And so we don't need to always be in the room in order for those topics and those issues to be addressed. We hope that we have solidarity among allied professionals, other folks um, that see this as, as, as an issue of liberation, see this as a human rights issue that we continue to advocate for um, because it is who we are as social workers. So please get involved at that level, the BDS movement um, to, to not support Israeli um, products. Um, to boycott, to disinvest um, as much as we can. And it's hard, again, being here in the United States, it's everything, right? Everything kind of goes back to, to the Israeli state, but just being an informed consumer, knowing where to spend your money, where to spend your tax dollars, and then educating others. So start with self, family, community, um, and then hopefully you know, extending that branch of knowledge so other folks are invested um, in this because it affects all of us. You can't say, oh, well, it happens over there. We don't know what's gonna happen to us. Look at the COVID pandemic when it first started. Well, that was over there, we're over here. With the globalization, the way that the world is going, we're all affected um, by all of these issues that uh, Dr. Nadira addressed. Um, we're all mothers, we're all daughters, we're all sons and fathers, and, and, and you know, this issue is, is, is more than a Palestinian issue, right? It is a global humanitarian crisis and a human rights issue. Yeah. Dr. Nadra, would you like to add any, any other suggestions? 
Well, yeah, yeah, I think that um, uh, Sahat said it uh, clearly that really, you know, we need to, to be, uh, the moment we know we need to, to act, act not only in, you know, in, in raising the awareness, reading, being, thinking, helping, because you need to remember being uh, being a social worker under the Israeli system of of um, uh, settler colonial system is not easy. You know, I can I can maybe um, share um, one of my students works for the welfare system in Jerusalem, and she was saying how from one side the Israeli system is uh, planned in a way. You know, it's camouflaged. It's it's naming intervention as helping the welfare of children, but they can do it only after the house is demolished. They can do it only after the child is incarcerated. So when you think about it, we really need, this is where the abolitionist approach comes, is that to say no to incarceration of children, no to interrogation of children, no to interference. You know, if you look only at, my, my, at, at the walk to school from seven to eight in Jerusalem, it's, it's really uh, uh, destabilizing and imbalancing children. So this is where social workers need to stand and to say, listen, these are issues that are uh, that are not accepted to anybody in the world. And therefore, the need to stage it, to talk about it, to raise it. Birthing mothers should reach the hospital without having to go into the hassle of being checked or having a child on the checkpoint, yeah? Uh, kids in Gaza needs to reach their hospitals or, or get a chemotherapy without needing to go into the court and, and being framed as security threats in, in, in the Israeli system. We need to remember that the welfare system, the Israeli system is part of that Zionist agenda. And therefore, our role as social workers is to speak back, is to say, no, we do not accept it. We're not going to allow it because silence is not is not an option. Silence means. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and if I can just add one thing to that, and then there's maybe one last question from the audience, um, and then I think we might be time to wrap things up. Um, but I want to add um, for social workers, you know, to this conversation about why it's so important for us to educate ourselves and for us to understand um, what is happening. And that is to listen, as everyone is doing now, to, to Palestinian voices and narratives and narrations to reject a kind of both sides um, narrative or framing of um, settler colonial violence. Um, and um, also another suggestion is um, for social workers to push and to ask our federations, our organizations, our international federations um, to be active and to not take a both sides um, neutralizing um, approach to um, the violence. Um, and then I think another value um, that comes with educating ourselves is that, you know, one of the most common silencing techniques um, these days around Palestinian resistance, especially here in the United States, is to equate um, anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism. And I think when folks aren't 
familiar enough or confident or comfortable enough in what is settler colonialism, what has Zionism looked like, it's, um, it's hard to push back, right, that silencing can be effective. And I think that it's by educating ourselves and understanding a little bit more that we can use our voices collectively um, in service of um, uh, interrupting and, and abolishing the occupation one. So um, the final question, um, uh, and maybe um, I'll ask this to you, um, Nadra, but somebody asked, how do we navigate the dangers of appealing to human rights when that framework is often used to justify imperialism and occupation by states like the U.S. and Israel? Yes, it's, it's an important question and it's like uh, <clears throat> uh, from one side you know um, asking appealing to human rights organization and then looking at the mode they are um, uh, analyzing the Palestinian situation the categories the the um, the framework uh, is problematic but at the same time I guess as Palestinians we need to keep on trying so we need to keep on trying uh, searching for um, a voice, whether it's at the UN, whether it's uh, by asking different human rights organizations. And unfortunately, I know very well that, you know, as a colleague have written, um, lots of the lots of countries are stealing the pains of others, looking at what goes on in Palestine, just and then leaving it alone. I, I believe that we need to keep on looking at the violations of children's rights, violations of human rights, the attacks on Gaza, the demolition, the attack on Jerusalem, the Judaization of Jerusalem. You know, this is a topic that I write about. So we need the, our only way is to to talk to to Bethlehem, to Acre, to the DCI, DCI Palestine, DCI Israel, to talk to those that are um, are searching for a way. Because you need to remember that people like like uh, Aida and people like Jaber and people like uh, Rahaf are still there and are still looking for a way to live and to reach school safely, to reach, um, to be able to provide for their kids. And we really need to keep on trying. So yes, please sign, for example, the petition to release Ahmed, to release Ahmed Manasra. We have over half a million. This is an opportunity to ask you to add your signature uh, on that, on our petition and help us pressure the state of Israel. Uh, help us through your, your Congress people you have here, um, um, many organizations that are um, reaching out to Congress people. We have the UK Palestine mental health workers that are also trying to mobilize so advanced abolitionist, abolitionist social work uh, for Palestine is really very important. So I guess that um, we have lots of work to do, but it's so important to continue our trial to raise Palestine, to sign the petition to sign the different petitions, to allow Palestinians, you know, the, the issue of dead bodies is major, grieving is major, finding a way to, to respect the living and the dead is part of what we do as social workers. And um, and I guess that it's by keep on, you know, I, I say that it's so much because it's the daily killing, it's the forced displacement, it's the incarceration, it's the so many geopolitical and biopolitical powers against us but it's also through the love through opening and creating new modes of hope 
and I see it. I see it in in the amazing love that we get from comrades in South Africa, in Kashmir, in the US, in Canada, seriously. And I feel that only by working together, by solidarity, by effective solidarity, by global solidarity, by walking the walk together, only by by working together, affecting global politics, we can change what goes on. And we can at least prevent the criminality and the continuous criminalities of the state of Israel. So Dr. Tabache, Dr. Shalhub Kevorkian, thank you so much for your brilliance, for your wisdom, for your time. Thank you for your hearts. Um, and thank you to all who joined us. Um, I really appreciate um, all of you in this time, um, as difficult as it is to hear and hold all of this. Um, I'm deeply appreciative. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.